Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. If you happen to be using one of the Bibles from the Connect Desk out in the lobby, you'll find this passage on page 524. Uh, This is actually our fourth week in John chapter 12. There is just so much in this chapter. We've got one more week to go. All of those five weeks just spent in John chapter 12. And I entitled this message, Seeing is Not Necessarily Believing. Now, I think we're used to hearing the opposite of that or a variation of that. Seeing is believing. Just show me the evidence or the proof and I will believe. That's a motto that many of us live by. I'm not just going to take someone's word for it. I need to see it for myself. So the state of Missouri is known as the show me state. Our license plates say beautiful British Columbia, which is true. The ones in Manitoba say friendly Manitoba. That's also true if you've met Manitobans. In the state of Missouri, the license plates, the little tagline is show me state. And the legend behind that is that it came from a speech that was given by William Duncan Van Diver. He was a congressman from the state of Missouri in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And he was giving a speech at a naval banquet in Philadelphia when he declared, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats. And frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri. You have got to show me. Now, he may not have been from Missouri, but Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, was like that. When the other disciples told him, look, Jesus has been raised from the dead, Thomas said, well, unless I see in his hands the mark from the nails, unless I, in fact, put my finger into those nail marks and put my hand into his sides, I will never believe. We may not be from Missouri, but I think lots of us live right there. Show me. Prove it to me. I want to see the evidence. Seeing is believing. And that's actually good up to a point. But if we are honest, I think there are times when even though we might see something, we still won't believe it. Seeing is not necessarily believing. So I was a long, I was like that for a long time with regards to Tom Brady, right? If you've been around Crossridge, you know I have mercilessly mocked him. But Tom Brady is in his 23rd season in the NFL. He's played in 10 Super Bowls. He has won seven of those Super Bowls. He holds the record for the most passing yards, most touchdowns uh, in NFL history. He holds a whole bunch of other records. Based on all of the available statistics, Tom Brady is the best quarterback of all time. He is the GOAT. But for the longest time, I just didn't like him. And I couldn't accept that fact. He was too much of a pretty boy. He didn't have the arm strength of some of the other quarterbacks. His first Super Bowl win was a fluke. A couple of others were surrounded by controversy. He won the Super Bowl over Seattle because of a brutal play call on the one-yard line. He won his fifth Super Bowl in 2017 after trailing 28-3 in the third quarter, and it was the greatest Super Bowl comeback of all time. 
It was after that game that I remember asking myself if I really thought he wasn't the greatest quarterback of all time or if I just didn't like him. He's since gone on to win two more. And I actually kind of like him now. All that to say that seeing isn't necessarily believing. I mean, Andy still probably doesn't believe that the Mariners are better than the Blue Jays. See, sometimes there are these other factors that make us predisposed to disbelieving. So I want you to hang on to that as we look at at verses 36b to verse 43 here in John chapter 12. And this is what it says. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, just a few verses for us to consider This morning, but there's more than enough for us to explore here. And out of this passage, I want to draw your attention to three things that we learn about unbelief. And the first thing we learn is that unbelief is not ultimately about a lack of evidence. So I'll comment just briefly on the second half of verse 36 since it begins our passage and then get into the unbelief part. Verse 36b says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So I told you a couple weeks back that you can basically divide the Gospel of John in half. The first 11 chapters are taken up with the three years of Jesus' public ministry, and then the rest of the book is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. It's actually this verse, or this half verse, that is the dividing point between the two halves of the book between Jesus' public ministry and his private ministry. And some scholars refer to these two sections as the book of signs and the book of glory. John 1, 2, 11, or up to here, is the book of signs. This is sort of Jesus stating his credentials. Here's who I am. Here's the works that I do. Here's the words that I say to prove that. And then everything from this point forward is all private. It's Jesus with his disciples, and then it's his death and resurrection. This is the book of glory. Now we see what the response was to Jesus' claims. In any case, verse 37 takes us into the heart of the matter when it comes to unbelief. And that verse says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is what I mean by saying that unbelief is not ultimately about a lack of evidence. Now, some people would push back at this point. One of the most prominent atheists of the last century was a man named Bertrand Russell. I remember reading one of his articles or his essays in college entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. 
He was once asked what he would say if he found himself standing before God on the judgment day and God asked him, why didn't you believe in me? Russell replied, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Is that the case? Is that the reason people don't believe in Jesus? Because there is simply not enough evidence. Well, John's language here is interesting. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And that's interesting in part because of the emphasis. It's so many signs. But it's also interesting because of the way John describes Jesus' miracles. I've mentioned this to you before, but John has a preference for the word signs over the word miracles. Jesus did lots of miracles, but John chose to highlight seven signs that Jesus did. A sign points to something beyond itself. As one writer put it, a sign is, no, is not so much a proof as it is a marker for someone who, who is looking in the right direction. See, that's why people can, two different people can look at the same sign and draw different conclusions from it. So what sort of signs did John have in mind when he said Jesus did so many signs before them? Well, we know that part of that is going to be related to the seven signs that that John has highlighted or focused on. But I actually think there's more. Uh, Look again at verse 38. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So John helps us understand that this unbelief on the part of the religious leaders was not unexpected. In fact, Isaiah had prophesied about it hundreds of years ago, saying they would not accept this testimony. John quotes the prophet Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The anticipated answer is not many have believed this. Not many will believe this. Now, maybe you recognize those words. They're actually the opening words to Isaiah chapter 53. That entire chapter helps us understand that Jesus or that Messiah would not only come, but that he would come and suffer and die for us. But there was something about Isaiah's prophecy that I had not noticed until this week. And it's tied in with what John is saying when he says that Jesus did so many signs. Isaiah refers to two things that the Israelites refused to accept. And these two things now correspond to the ministry of Jesus. Notice what he says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And then the second half of his prophecy is, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the arm of the Lord is a way of referring to the strength or the power or the activity of God. So Isaiah's prophecy is about the words and the works of the Lord. And it's not hard to see how the first part of Isaiah's prophecy corresponds with the words or the teaching of Jesus. And the second part refers to the miracles or the signs that Jesus did. They won't accept either of those things. The words and the works of Jesus. These were the things the religious leaders were in denial of. 
So who has believed what he's heard from us? Jesus was an amazing teacher. When you read through the Gospels, you discover that his words do compel belief at times. So Luke describes the result of Jesus' teaching like this. And he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In a similar way, the Gospel of Matthew records the crowd's response when Jesus finished delivering the Sermon on the Mount like this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There was something about Jesus' teaching that compelled people. He was immediately recognized as being different from the multitude of other teachers. We saw something similar earlier in John's gospel. In John chapter 4, you know the story. John, or Jesus there has this interaction with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She comes to the realization that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. She's so excited, she runs back to her village. She tells everyone there that she's met the Messiah. And the end of John chapter 4 reads like this, And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So sometimes the teaching of Jesus will result in people placing their faith in him. But that wasn't the result for the religious leaders. Jesus' miracles were another kind of testimony. The arm of the Lord was being revealed. The miracles Jesus did sometimes compelled people to put their faith in him. Matthew records the reaction of Jesus' disciples when he calmed a raging storm like this. He says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? Even the wind, the winds and the sea obey him. This was a consistent reaction from those who saw what Jesus did, saw the signs or the miracles that he did. Many put their faith in him. Not just those who were healed, but those who saw what he did. But again, Jesus' miracles didn't always produce that kind of reaction. Seeing wasn't necessarily believing. Listen to Jesus' words denouncing three cities where he did lots of miracles. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. See, sometimes the miracles of Jesus produced faith, and sometimes they did not. So the miracles were signs, but two different people could look at the same sign and draw a different conclusion. Why was that? Well, John chapter 12, where we are now, follows on the heels of John chapter 11. I know I'm not telling you anything great or great insight with that. But remember, John chapter 11 is the chapter where Jesus does his greatest sign, right? He raises Lazarus from the dead. 
Listen to the way that same sign produced different responses. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So it wasn't a lack of evidence that produced the unbelief on the part of the religious leaders or authorities. The evidence was right there in front of them. They chose not to believe it or not to see it. And I've said this to you before in this series, but if you are looking for a reason not to believe, you can always find one. One example of this from history is Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley was considered one of the leading intellectuals of his day. He's the author of the dystopian novel, Brave New World. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in literature seven different times. Back in the 1920s, Huxley argued that we needed to get rid of religion because it was too emotional. He argued that we should instead concentrate on science and reason. That's where we will find the real answers to life's problems. Aldous Huxley died in 1963, the same day actually as C.S. Lewis and JFK. But in the 1960s, Aldous Huxley was no longer saying that science and reason were the answer. He looked at the state of the world, concluded science and reason have made a mess of things. And now he was saying we need to get rid of Christianity because it's too rational. He was now advocating that what we needed was mysticism and emotionalism. He actually died on an LSD trip. See, if you're looking for a reason not to believe, you can always find one. Christianity is too emotional. Christianity is too rational. But maybe you've encountered this with just regular people that you've interacted with. They might be skeptical or have objections to the Christian faith. You try to answer those objections as best you can. You basically download all of your apologetics on the reliability of the New Testament, the the reasonableness of the Christian faith, and they just shrug and say, actually, I'm not interested. I remember having a conversation with a neighbor like that. Now, we got along well. We had lots of good, respectful conversations. He once told me some of the objections that he had to, to the Christian faith. I asked him if he would consider reading a short book that I found helpful. He responded with, I'm not really interested. See, that unbelief wasn't the result of a lack of evidence, but an unwillingness to consider the evidence. So unbelief isn't ultimately about a lack of evidence. The second thing we learn about unbelief in this passage is that willful unbelief results in a judicial hardening by God. Now, maybe that seems like a strange way to express it, but this is what we see in verses 39 and 40. Let me read those verses again. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. These verses are kind of shocking if we're honest about it. Who has blinded their eyes? 
Who has hardened their hearts? Well, God has. That's clearly what Isaiah was saying. And this quotation from Isaiah is from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has this vision of God and receives his prophetic commission from God. God sent Isaiah to go and pronounce judgment on a rebellious people, a people who had rejected him. That verse is actually quoted four more times in the New Testament. But what are we supposed to do with this? What does it mean to say that God blinds people's eyes and hardens their hearts? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there was a group of people who came to God and said, we want to put our faith in Jesus. And God said, no, I'm not going to let you do that. This is not Jesus saying that there are all these people who want to believe in me, but God won't let them. This is not a sort of arbitrary, no soup for you kind of thing. Theologians refer to this as a judicial hardening. The idea behind that is that people refuse to believe, so God gives them over to their unbelief. Now, there are passages like Romans 9 that we might rightly refer to as election and reprobation passages, but I don't think John chapter 12 is actually one of those passages. Here's what John Kelvin said about it. He said, in this passage, we ought to consider not so much the foreknowledge of God as his justice and vengeance. For God declares not what he beholds from heaven that men will do, but what he himself will do. And that is, he will strike men with stupidity and thus will take vengeance on their obstinate wickedness. In this passage, he points out the nearer and inferior cause why God intends that his word which is in its own nature salutary and quickening, it'll wake you up, shall be destructive and deadly to the Jews. It is because they deserved it by their obstinate wickedness. Now, I know that's pretty heady for a Sunday morning. What exactly is Calvin saying? The distilled version of that is basically what what I'm saying to you. That willful unbelief results in a judicial hardening by God. The people, in this case, the religious leaders, have responded to the clear evidence before them with obstinate unbelief. Therefore, God exercises his judgment on them by giving them over to continued unbelief. Kevin DeYoung said it like this. Again, let's be clear. This is not God putting up a wall so that people run to him and say, I want to be a Christian. I want to come to you. No, I put up a wall. You can't get to me. Rather, he is exercising judgment in this life on the wicked by blinding their eyes so that they do not see and hardening their hearts so that they do not understand. And I think it's important that we understand the significance of this. People sometimes think, well, look, I I can just put off all of that Jesus stuff until some later time in my life. I'm just going to live for the here and now, do whatever I want, and maybe when I'm retired or maybe when I'm in a hospital bed, I'll consider all of that. I'll think about it. And I want to say that is a dangerous road to travel. Now, God will eventually judge all unbelief, but we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that he doesn't judge it now, in this life. 
The book of Romans tells us that God sometimes judges us by giving us exactly what we want. Three times in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that God's judgment was revealed in the fact that he gave people over to their desires. Specifically, we're told he gave them up to the lusts of their heart. And that he gave them up to dishonorable passions. And that he gave them up to a debased mind. And here John, through the prophet Isaiah, is telling us that God does exactly the same thing with regard to unbelief and hardness of heart. You want to harden your heart? I'll give you lots of hardness of heart. You want to walk in darkness? I'll give you lots of darkness. You want to close your eyes so that you can't see? I'll make it so you can never open them again. So we shouldn't think that we'll just sort of suddenly be able to, you know, flip a switch and walk out of our unbelief or out of our sin later. Now, I should just clarify, this doesn't mean you can't have questions. This is not describing the person who says, well, look, I I find the gospel records compelling. There's something about Jesus that's interesting, but I want to know if they're true. That's a legitimate kind of questioning. This is about willful unbelief. The refusal to believe because you don't want to believe. Because if it's true, it carries with it all sorts of life-changing truths. Willful unbelief results in a judicial hardening by God. The third thing we see here is that unbelief is often rooted in loving the praise of man more than the praise of God. This is the sad truth that's revealed in verses 42 and 43. Verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, these verses seem to present a different category of people. Many of the authorities, authorities were not hostile towards Jesus. In fact, they had some degree of belief in him. But they were scared to make that known because it would ruin their social standing. They would be put out of the synagogue. So what are we supposed to make of this group? Were they genuine believers who just lacked courage? Or was their faith spurious? Well, the answer might not be quite as obvious as you think. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus seems to address this very type of thing when he says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That seems pretty clear. Don't acknowledge me before others, and you can't be one of his disciples. If you've been to one of our baptisms, you will know that we usually read these verses from the book of Romans as part of it. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So confession with the mouth is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we have to understand that making that confession, Jesus is Lord, was a risky thing to do in the first century. 
the confession everyone living in the Roman Empire in the first century was required to make was Caesar is Lord. And so it might be good to remind ourselves from time to time that our faith is grounded actually in a confession that puts us out of favor, not just with our peers, but with our rulers as well. And yet public confession is part of Christian discipleship. Now, on the other side of the equation, we might point to a couple of individuals we encounter in the Gospel of John and conclude, but weren't these also his disciples? So John 19 records what happened after Jesus died, and it says this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So what about these guys? I mean, weren't they also followers of Jesus, but secret ones or private ones? So maybe there's a third option. You you can be opposed to Jesus, you can be a public follower of Jesus, or you could just be a private one, a secret one. Well, I think that would be the wrong conclusion to draw. Now, we know that at his first encounter, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and he did so because he didn't want to jeopardize his position. He was, after all, the teacher of Israel. And it's okay to be there for a while. Lots of followers of Jesus start out that way. I mean, my wife would tell you that when she began to be interested in Christianity... She intentionally went to a large church and would slip in the back, slip out when it was over, as a way to remain anonymous. Some of you may have a similar story. But a genuine disciple will out themselves at some point. That's actually how we ought to read what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are doing in John 19. They may have been secret followers up to that point, but asking for the body of Jesus and having it buried in your tomb was hardly a secret act. Now, even if you're not 100% sure about Joseph and Nicodemus, I hope you can at least see that believing in Jesus but not confessing him publicly is a dangerous place to live. John 12, 43 is not the Bible verse you want etched on your tombstone. For they loved the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. Listen to Kelvin again. He said, can anything be more foolish? Or rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applause of men to the judgment of God? What a bad exchange, right? You can have the approval of man. Well done. Way to go. Good job. Or you can have the approval of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And so we need to make sure we're not impressing the wrong people. And sometimes we have to make that choice. We have to do it in life. Is it more important to impress your coworkers with your wittiness or your boss with your job performance? 
Well, it depends on what your goal is. But that decision will have consequences. Is it more important to press your buddies or your wife? It will depend on what your goal is. I mean, if you like sleeping on the couch, go with your buddies. And what John is talking about here has far greater consequences. And I would just say that the older I get, the more clearly I see this. That there's often a tug of war between our desire for the approval of man and our desire for the approval of God. Now, I'm not saying those things are always at odds, but often they are. Proverbs 29, verse 25, puts it this way. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, the religious leaders in John chapter 12 fell into that snare or into that trap because they thought it would guarantee them safety. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. If we confess Jesus, what's going to happen to us? And they probably achieved that goal, but at what cost to their souls? The fear of man lays a snare. Are you in it? Are you trapped in it? Trapped in your desire to have the approval of man by your peers? more than the approval of God. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So if you want to have true safety, you can only find it in a relationship with the living God. Have you placed your trust in him? Have you put your faith in him? That's what John is telling us to do. Approval of man or the approval of God? Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that none of us should live with a sinful, unbelieving heart that puts us in jeopardy. And so, God, as we think about this idea of unbelief and what its root cause is in our life, we pray you would... Uh, Give us insight and clarity into how this affects us, how it works in our lives. And uh, we pray that we we would make the right decision there, that we would find our safety and our security in you and not in the people around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.